So if you'll remember in uh, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, in verse 2, Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he brings up this idea of sanctification, that you can be justified, or, or think of it like this, a, um, a decision can be made or an action can be taken. Uh, and we can say it's a justified action. If an officer in the line of duty has to take the life of another person to stop that person from committing a crime or harming others, then that shooting may be justified. But that doesn't mean it's a good thing. It's justified by the law, but it's not a good thing. It's not a sanctified thing. Maybe that distinction helps us understand the difference between justification and sanctification. We are justified by God's grace, but that grace goes further and is in the process of sanctifying us. Now, uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's a very interesting phrase there. To those of us, not to those of us who are saved past tense, but to those of us who are being saved. I don't think this means that our salvation is somehow in process and tenuous. I think what it means is that our our Paul has a large view of the salvation project. That what God is up to is more than just um, moving our, you know, token from the unsaved to the saved category, just kind of moving our little marker. He is in the process of making something beautiful out of our lives in addition to making sure that we're saved. Um, Then if we go to chapter 15, we pick up on this same idea. 15, we read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Uh, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, catch the significance of this. After everything that they've written to Paul, after everything that they've been concerned about, and you think about some of the things that we've seen here. Some of these were things that Paul has heard about, He's got Chloe's people who showed up and said, Paul, there's some things going on in Corinth. You need to know about it. There were the divisions. People were saying, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Cephas. And some say, well, I'm just a follower of Christ. And so you have the factions. Paul has heard that there's a man who's in a relationship with his stepmother. Paul has heard that they are taking one another before the uh, pagan courts. Now, they've written him some questions about uh matters concerning marriage and remarriage and divorce they have written him about um uh about meat sacrificed to idols uh he's heard about they've written to him about matters dealing with the head covering of women when they pray and prophesy and then he's heard about the way they've been behaving at the lord's supper 
and uh, he understands all the problems that they've had with the different spiritual gifts and how they're using those to elevate themselves. They're using their knowledge to puff up themselves instead of love to build up one another. So they've had this back-and-forth discussion where all of these different matters are being brought up about how the church ought to function, how they ought to behave. And right here at the end of it, he shows them where he got all of his answers. Because everything that he has answered has come from this central truth. And notice what Paul says. I want to remind you of the gospel I've preached to you, which you received. In verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received. This verse alone will tell you there is no flat reading of Scripture. There have been attempts historically to flatten Scripture out so that the greatest command and the least command are really not the greatest and least at all, but they are just kind of the same thing. Not at all. Some are based on others. You go back and you look at the Old Testament and the prophecies of some of the prophets is based on the fact that God brought the people out of Israel. He took them, or out of Egypt. He took them out of Egypt He put them in the promised land, and he says, now because God did that for you, here's how you're going to behave. Paul says that for for the Christians, we know what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, so that means that we have to act and behave in a certain way. It follows. It naturally follows. So for Paul, this first importance of the cross means that everything else hinges on that. Now now watch what he does with this. I delivered to you as of first important that which I also received. What is that, Paul? Okay. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all is to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. He's reminding everyone, this is that which is of first importance. Uh, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, okay? And uh, how we know that? Well, he was buried. And then he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. How do we know that? Well, Cephas saw it, saw him raised. The twelve saw him raised. And then if... a point that sometimes we forget. 500 witnessed the risen Christ. Um, you know, you could almost believe that a group of 12 who maybe had an ulterior motive could invent such a story, but 500? I mean, there's, there's appearances of the risen Christ being witnessed in the ancient world at this time that, 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 uh, that go beyond just a small group. Um, This is larger than some of the communities that some of us grew up in, right? 500 people, and then James, and then to him. And and he's, he's mentioning what he went through, not so much to brag on himself, but to say, you know, I was an enemy of all of that. 
And witnessing that turned me around. So his death is proven by the fact that he was buried, and his resurrection is proven and testified to the fact that he was witnessed. Okay, so he says, now that's what was preached. He says, I preach that, Cephas preaches that, Every, whoever told it to you, we preach that gospel, that same message. That's what we preach, that's what you believed. So he's stunned in verse 12 when he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There's not a, don't, don't really know here if they're denying the resurrection of Jesus or if they're denying the resurrection of the dead in general. It may be that they've bought into some, some pagan ideas, some Greek ideas, that the material body is no good. Some of the other material discussed in the, script, in the uh, letter supports this. That maybe they believe that the material body is, uh, is somehow broken, corrupted, evil, and so it, it goes away and it frees our soul and our soul goes into eternity. That's a dualist perspective. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I had a discussion with some folks, and they said, you know, um, they said Christianity has more in common with Buddhism than it does with Judaism. I said, where, 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 where do you get that idea? And they said, well, you know, J- Judaism doesn't believe in the uh, separation of the soul and the, and the body. I said, neither does Christianity. Well, what? And I said, yeah. I said, it doesn't. I said, that, that comes about later. I said, yeah, I know that there's a lot of that that's, that's mentioned out there in Christianity. You know, oh, the body's just garbage, and then the soul flies away. But that's not the Christian witness in the first few centuries. That's not the Christian message. And listen, let's be, people think this. Th- this was a Christian thinker, by the way. People think this because the church has bought into this. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if you proclaim that there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. Uh, That that seems to support the idea that they're accepting of the fact, I mean, they're they're picking and choosing. Okay, Christ is risen from the dead, but there is no resurrection of the dead. Our bodies don't matter, they go away. He says that's not consistent. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. That's an important point, and that changed my faith years ago. And I I hope you'll hold on to this too and then pass it along to others. I had accepted this idea that, you know, even if, kind of convincing myself that, you know what, even if there is no truth to this, even if there is no God, no resurrection of the dead, Christianity is still the best life there is. Hogwash. Not, that doesn't work. Because then there's no explanation to why some of my brothers and sisters suffer for their faith. Why they should be persecuted. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if Jesus Christ is not raised, then we've got some deluded people who are suffering for no good reason and some people who are making costly decisions for no good reason. Paul says, I won't stand for it. 
Think of what Paul has gone through because he has accepted the reality that Jesus of Nazareth, who died, is now risen from the dead. Second, I become convinced that Christ is, you know, some of you have told me, you know, and you're like, oh, I hope you don't go anywhere. Second, I become convinced that Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead. I'm out of here, okay? I'm going to go, I'm going to do something else, you know. But you don't need to worry about that. Don't worry about that. Because I am convicted of this, and it's why things are different. It's what gives me hope. And, I, and, and that's the kind of hope we need to share with people. Um, that's what I'm always impressing upon my, my family and my children, is that, look, this is what really matters. This is what really counts. Because this changes everything, if this is true. And Paul is now getting to something, you know, it's like, compared to this, whether or not these women are wearing head coverings when they're praying and prophesying, well, it just doesn't seem to be that much of a big deal, does it? In fact, when you compare it to some of the stuff that we get kind of worked up about, doesn't seem to be much of a big deal, but some of this stuff about the resurrection is so far off for us that we're kind of, uh, you know, I don't know. Paul says it comes down to this, and it makes all the difference. Notice where he turns the corner here in 20. He says, if in fact, oh no, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and now he's going to mention the significance of it. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ we shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. There's a lot of subjection going on there, and it can be hard to move through that. And I advise you to read this, too, in a different translation sometime. But what's, what Paul is talking about is that this reality of Christ being raised doesn't end there. In addition to the resurrection, Christ is exalted. Um, I think we preached this at Easter, that... that uh, the gospel doesn't end with the resurrection of Jesus. It continues on into the exaltation of Jesus. That now Jesus becomes the ruler, the king of kings and the lord of lords, as our banners up here say. All things become subject to him. And so God now has made everything connected to this resurrection individual, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says he's the first fruits. He's the beginning. He's the um, it, it's, it, you know, first fruits are those, um, those, those first signs that, that, um, that the crop is blooming, that things are coming, that good things are coming, a new season is there. And people didn't count the seasons and mark the seasons the same way that you and I do with technology and calendars, but you would watch the times and you would watch the stars in the sky and see how nature's reacting to things. He says, this is a sign that the nature of things is changing. You've got this risen man, Jesus Christ. 
And that doesn't fit the accepted order of things. We're used to the way of things that deal with Adam. He's created, and because of sin, he dies. And that's what we expect as the norm. But he says the reality of Jesus Christ changes that. And now he's exalted so that everything must become subject, everything must become under his power, including death. And that's the game changer. Because if Jesus holds power over death, then death can be undone. <clears throat> okay, so verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Oh, boy. You might have been hoping I would explain that tonight. I'm going to disappoint you. I've studied this one for years, and I'm still not sure what this is all about. But there's something there going on there where they have this belief in something. And I don't think this is, okay, like, you know, I'm going to get baptized for, um, you know, John Doe who died, but I'm going to get baptized for him. I'm not sure that's what, he, what it means. Um, but whatever it is, they have some concept. He's using their own thinking against them. He's already done that once. He's saying, you've accepted that Jesus Christ is raised. Now, if you accept that Jesus Christ is raised, then you have to accept that there's a resurrection of the dead. He says, you cannot hold two conflicting thoughts. All right, we understand that. Um, he says here then, if people, um, you know, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, then why are people baptized on their behalf? Whatever on their behalf really means. He's saying you have a practice that demonstrates that there must be a resurrection of the dead. So here for a second time, he's showing them that they're holding contradictory thoughts, which keep aiming back to the, don't miss the, the bigger point in getting bogged down. This take a whole other class to do. But the bigger point is, is that there is a resurrection of the dead. And not only that, he's not just trying to prove it, it changes things. He says, why are we in danger? In every hour, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Now he's using his other point. He's saying, you know, look, if, if we've gone through all these hardships, why would we do it if there is no resurrection of the dead? Why would I face the wild beasts at Ephesus? And, and so um, he says, if the dead are not raised, then what's the point? Eat, drink, die tomorrow. So what? Just keep going. And that's precisely his point before. So he's calling them to shame, some amount of shame to say, you've got to embrace the importance of the gospel. If not, you're not going to be living right. Sanctification is not to get us into heaven. It's because heaven has broken into our reality and changed things. Now, let's keep going with Paul here, and he's going to say some things about the resurrection. Uh, he says, someone will ask. Now he's entering into a hypothetical debate. Someone's going to say, well, now, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Okay. So they're saying, you know, how can you get dead flesh reanimated? What is this? Uh, somebody told me today or the other day because, you know, 
um, <coughs> zombies are so popular, they said, well, this is, this is uh, you know, the Bible's talking about zombies, the reanimated flesh. Oh, oh good grief. I'm tired of zombies. But anyway, I was tired of zombies before they even uh, got popular. But, uh, okay, so Paul's asking the question then. And by the way, you know, this may sound silly, but people will ask you these questions. They will. They really will. And, and, and we need to not so much laugh at those situations, but go ahead and use the opportunity. People say, there's all this talk of resurrection. It sounds like the walking dead or something. Okay, let's talk about that. Because Paul says it's something completely different. Because <clears throat> someone there in Corinth is asking, you know, well, how, how do you have a resurrected body? What is it like? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, you know. They may be, this sophisticated person may be saying, I can understand a spiritual reality where all, everybody saw a spiritual risen Savior, but, but, a, but a body, a real body, you know, how, how does that work? Okay, so he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. He's going to be using first century science here, and we don't need to put him down for that. Science is a way of categorizing. Science is not a truth in and of itself, by the way. That's one of our problems in the 21st century and even in the 20th century, is that science has become something of a god to where it becomes an alternative to faith. The material world, the, re the real world, whatever you want to call it that we live in, we can change the labels and change the It's going to keep going as God intends it to go. You know, we can say that something's different. That, it, it doesn't change. It's going to be what it's always been. Science is our way of categorizing our understanding of the world around us. It isn't an entity that exists outside of us. A hundred years ago, people used a whole different set of, of uh, scientific understandings to describe the world. You know, if you look what's going on within science, you know, they, they, they had views of the universe where, uh, you know, the, the sun is at the center of the universe and then the earth was at the center of the universe. That was their understanding of things, okay? They may not have been right, but now every time that we think we're right, we're told we're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is how the universe is set up. Yeah, but that's not really the way it is because now we've found out that gravity doesn't work the same. It's not the constant we thought it was. Well, thank you, Mr. Einstein. Thank you, everyone, you know, who tells us that everything we knew is not the same. Listen, the universe is as God wanted it to be. Our understanding changes, and so we change the labels and we change the categories. So Paul's going to use their categories of understanding the world to say, look, there's some simple ways at looking at the way things happen that will point you to this reality of the resurrection. It'll come close, but it won't fully explain it. And one of those is simply planting crops. And if you stop and think about it, those seeds that you plant that become the, 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 the vegetables that you harvest in your garden, where do those come from? I mean, if you, I, was, I, was in the, I was in my folks' garden yesterday and, you know, got all these peppers. I don't even know what kind they are. And, and uh, we got pears off the tree. And, and I'm thinking, you know, a, a year ago, months ago, this wasn't there. It wasn't even there. 
But by an amazing process of transferring matter through this plant system, something that wasn't there grew out. It has a new form. And it certainly wasn't in that seed. Somebody said, well, it was coated into that seed and it was there. Yeah, but that amount of material wasn't in there. So he says that what you put into the ground goes away. Something new comes up. It's a completely new body. It's a completely new form. That's his first example. His second example is this. He says, not all flesh is the same. There's one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now, in our 21st century view, we might be saying, oh, now, wait a second. Everybody always tells us that there's only like this much DNA that separates us from chimpanzees. Okay, I get it. And, and people like to say stuff like that, so I guess I don't know that we're supposed to go around smoking cigars on roller skates and wearing funny hats or something, you know, like, you know, oh, there's no difference in us, all the animals. Yeah, but th- that, those, those differences in DNA make all the difference, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, you know, if somebody told me, look, here, here's, here's, two, here's two casseroles. Now, this casserole and this casserole, the only difference is an infinitesimal amount of plutonium that's in this one and not in this one, you know. Oh, well, I guess it doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, I'll just eat the one with plutonium. Um, plutonium will kill you, by the way. So, anyway, here's the... Uh, in their view, these different types of creatures, that was one way of categorizing those creatures. And they had different kinds of flesh. Not just the flesh material, but their bodies were made differently. And you can look up ancient science sources and see what they thought about this. Just like we categorize animals based on things. And it's just as arbitrary. These creatures have vertebrae and these creatures don't. Why does that matter so much? You know, why, why did we pick that as a big criteria? Uh, you know, but, but it's how we do it. Well, for them, it made sense to divide it. You've got, hum- you got four. You've got humans, um, you've got animals, and then you've got the flying critters, and then you've got the swimming critters. Okay. And so they said, now, now, that, now they're different. You know, you notice differences about them. And if you just look at it on appearances, you know, birds have feathers, fish have scales, animals have fur, and humans, some have more hair than others, and, you know, so... Uh, but he says there, there are different kinds of bodies. And then he mentions heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Um, heavenly bodies would be the stars, would be the lights that you would see in the sky. And they, almost, and they have not only a uh, scientific view of this, but they have a, uh, a spiritual and even a philosophical view of this, that there are levels of the heavens. Okay? Now, this is their world. This is the way they see it. And people who put this down and say, well, this is, just, this is just nonsense, this is just ancient thinking. Why on earth would Paul be appealing to them in a way to match our 21st century uh, you know, sophistication? Which, by the way, in another thousand years, somebody may be laughing at the way that we see the world. So be it. But he's saying that there's different kinds of glory. So... Um, the glory of the heavenly bodies is one kind of glory, and the glory of the earthly bodies is another kind. There's one type of glory for the sun, another type of glory for the moon, and another type of glory for the stars. And each star differs from the other star in its glory. So he's calling into mind that they recognize that there's these differences. So he says, the same way with the resurrection of the dead. What you sow is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. There is a change, is his point. 
It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, it's raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. And by the way, he's not talk, he doesn't say a spiritual ghost. He says a spiritual body. One of the Jewish categories of spiritual was that spiritual wasn't immaterial and phantom. Spiritual was more real than real. And Paul is buying into this. Now, I want you to understand, too, these are not just clever words that Paul penned so that we would have something to say at funerals, you know, which is often, you know, we look at this as funeral poetry. He is making an important point for people who need to get their lives straight and need to get the church on track. He wants them to be sanctified people. So this matters. He's telling them, look, things change. Don't you get it? I mean, it's as simple as plants. It's as simple as the animals and the world you see around you. Just look up in the sky. Things are different. Don't you think that pre-resurrection and post-resurrection, there's a different kind of material? So whatever this humanity is or this body that Jesus has, and remember the question was, with what kind of body are the dead raised? He says, it's something that we don't have a category for right now. It's something in and of itself unique. Um... He says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And heaven is not an unreal, you know, misty, immaterial realm. It's real. And there's glorious heavenly bodies up there. Uh, As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul is saying there is a reality more than just this. And notice that he kept hitting the word change. It changes. So the things that we do now count for something, is what he's saying. We don't just end up worm food. Uh, You know, if you've ever seen the uh, movie Dead Poets Society, you know, great movie, great story. A lot of people, ministers love that for some reason. I don't know why. Because there's actually a point, you know, because the whole message of it is Robin Williams is telling all these young fellows at this, uh, you know, prep school, Carpe Diem, seize the day, and they go out and they read poetry, and some of them get sad, and some bad things happen, and some of them press on, you know, and they get persecuted and all that. But the whole point of the story is 
see all these dead people who are here? Guess what? They're worm food. I think that's his actual words. You know, they, they, they basically, they're, they're pushing up daisies. You know, they just, they've become dirt. That's not a Christian message at all. Paul says there's something more. Because we've seen the first example of this. We've seen, we might say in our language, instead of first fruits, we might say, we've seen the prototype. <laughs> we've seen the prototype. I saw it. I was the last one to see it. James saw it. Cephas saw it. 500 saw it. 12 apostles saw it. We've witnessed this and experienced this. And we tell you, this prototype is where we're all headed. It's a new kind of humanity. In some of his other texts, Paul will write about the new humanity, the new creation, the new, um, uh, the new creature. And so he's saying, this is where this is all headed. So what you're doing now matters. You are moving into that reality. It's going to be changed. And so he says it's a mystery, but he says it's a mystery that they can start to uh, grasp uh, because he, he says that there are some things they can liken it to. But to just deny it or to say that it's just kind of a spiritual phantom thing is going to lead us in the wrong direction. If you go back and look, what he did in chapter 15 will in some way explain his answers to everything else. That when they're concerned about meat sacrifice to idols. He'll differentiate between their bodies and the spiritual realities that we all live with. Um, that um, the way that we show respect to one another matters because of the spiritual realities of what God has done in Christ to exalt Christ above all humanity. Just go back and look at the way he answers all of the different issues that were brought up. And it comes down to this thing that he says was of first importance. That is the lens and the key to understanding how he answers things. And then uh, chapter 16, I'm not going to read it all, but chapter 16 is, is an epilogue of sorts where um, he talks about the collection of the saints He's not just talking about first day of the week giving as much as he's talking about a plan for giving because there is a project to give. Uh, he says on the first day of the week, put aside something, store it up, whatever you've prospered, so that there will be no collecting when I come. You know, we often want to make it about, you know, okay, anything that I give beforehand, if I don't give it, you know, I've got to give it on a Sunday or it doesn't somehow count where do we get such legalism? He says that there's a need for giving here, and so he says, I, I want you to be ready. I want you to be prepared. Think about it as you live, as you go along. First day of the week makes sense. That's the Lord's day. So you put a little bit aside. Then he says, then when I do arrive to take the collection to give to those who need it, guess what? You've already got it prepared. You've already got it stored up. Uh, he says, and when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. He's talking about the way that they share their needs as a people. He says, and now he's got travel plans. I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. 
But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. They're doing business here, and that's okay. It's hospitality. It's, it's, it's teamwork. It's the way the church lives together. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it, was, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's the way you close a letter in the ancient world. You send greetings from people. Um, he's showing them that connection. And there's different you know, types of value to this material that we see here. It's just, again, an, an illustration of the fact that Paul is not trying to write lofty church doctrine in these letters and set out these rules he's writing to people that he knows that others know real people who are trying to live out this resurrection reality in the real world just like you and i and so that ought to encourage us to realize that that this this spiritual reality that we've that we're growing to understand it matters it matters every day. And it matters even in the ordinary things. I'm always amazed at how Paul can talk about the resurrection and write all about that. And then the next thing you know, he's just kind of just right there on the streets talking about these guys, Prisca and Aquila and Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and talking about visits. And you know, To me, that's just a mind-bending turn. But for Paul, the everyday pedestrian world of travel plans and Apollos and, the, and the, you know, the cosmic reality of the resurrection have come together. And the reason why he can do that is because he has encountered the prototype of the new humanity, his Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you see where the human Christ and the creator of all the universe have come together, showing us how we ought to be. And that's why Christ is the model for new life. Well, that's 1 Corinthians, and uh, I hope it encourages us all in some way. We're going to sing this song. If you need to um, partake of the communion, it's been prepared in room 100. So let's stand and sing, and then Stan will dismiss us in prayer. <laughs>